concluding our series on the fruit of the Spirit. This morning we are looking at the fruit of the Spirit being humility. Now, you may realize that humility is not in the list of attributes in Galatians chapter 5, but it's certainly one that is included in other lists about the character of godly people and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, in a person's life. As we look at humility this morning, you know, we're just reminded as we have been working through this series, and hopefully uh, you have grown in understanding this, this dynamic of how the gospel produces the fruit of the Spirit in its various manifestations. For, as Tim Keller has said, and as I've said almost each and every week, it is entirely possible to have a morally restrained heart without having a supernaturally changed heart. And so we've been examining how exactly it is that the gospel works in us to produce these, this fruit of the Spirit. As we go in this message here this morning, as I mentioned the quote from Keller, um, I have this morning in this passage, uh, I have, I'm not really sharing his thoughts, but I am sharing some of his references and just wanted to recognize him for that. But as we come to this topic of humility, I think it's different than many of the other fruit of the Spirit. Namely because many of the other fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, these are attributes that most everybody in our culture would say, yes, yes, we need more of that. We need more of that in our lives. And so they are attributes and characteristics that are highly regarded within our culture and with for many of us as well. However, when it comes to humility, this is one topic and one fruit of the Spirit that flies in direct opposition to the world and probably in direct opposition to how your identity has been founded and upon which you have built it. In 2009, New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote an op-ed called The High Five Nation. And he gives this observation. He's going to give a number of cultural references. Yes, they're about a decade old. Uh, but I think you'll understand what he's saying. And some of you can remember them. We can easily give contemporary references. Brooks writes this. He says, when you look from today back to 1945, you are looking into a different cultural Epoch. You're looking across a sort of narcissism line. Humility, the sense that nobody is that different from anybody else, was a large part of the culture then. But that humility came under attack in the ensuing decades. Self-effacement became identified with conformity and self-repression. Did you hear that? Self-effacement became identified with conformity and self-repression. A different ethos came to the fore with what sociologists have called expressive individualism. Instead of being humble before God in history, moral salvation could be found through intimate contact with oneself and by exposing the beauty and the power of the divinity within. He continues, everything that starts out as a cultural revolution ends up as a capitalistic routine. Before long, self-exposure and self-love became ways to win shares in the competition for attention. 
Muhammad Ali would tell all cameras that he was the greatest of all time. Norman Mailer wrote a book called Advertisements for Myself. Today, immodesty is as ubiquitous as advertising and for the very same reasons. To scoop up just a few examples of self-indulgent expression from the last few days when he wrote this, he says, there is Joe Wilson using the house floor as his own private crossfire. There is Kanye West grabbing the microphone from Taylor Swift at the MTV Music Awards to give us his opinion that the wrong person has won. There is Michael Jordan's egomaniacal and self-indulgent Hall of Fame speech. And baseball and football games are now so routinely interrupted by self-celebration, you don't even notice it anymore. Addressing this core issue that is present within our hearts, how our very hearts are opposed to the idea of humility, Paul, writing to a church in Philippi, says this to them. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above it every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts to understand your word, for apart, the wor- apart from the working of your spirit, we cannot understand this because our hearts are resistant to the things of God. Our hearts long to center the universe on ourselves. So, Father, we pray that in this moment that your spirit would break through our self-centered orientation and that you, Lord, by your spirit, would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ that we would sing his praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our culture conflicts with the biblical picture of humility. And it is not simply our culture, but we ourselves, we conflict with the biblical picture of humility and the humility that the gospel produces. We're going to begin by looking at three issues that are core to our American approach to life, core to our American Christian approach to life that are fundamentally in conflict with the humility that is produced by the gospel. And then we're going to see how Jesus Christ upends these things. So to begin with, the first one that is in conflict is this, is that gospel humility conflicts with winning. 
Let that sink in. Gospel humility conflicts with winning. Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, I think, explains the dynamic. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. For if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Humility conflicts with winning. Yes, it is, it is genuinely possible that you are passionate and that you are passionate and motivated and driven and you are driven towards excellence because you love what you do, because you love what you are devoting yourself to. It is possible that you could be a marathon runner and you just love running. You love the athleticism of it. You love trying to run faster. You love the mutual benefit of competition that pushes you to go farther than you think that you could go on your own. But if you're motivated by love, when you're running, you'll be just as happy if your friend breaks the record as if you do. You'll be just as happy that if you said, you know what, I can't believe that person beat me. I'm going to train hard. I'm going to train hard to beat them and to beat the record. And so you do that. And so you run the race, and you actually beat that person's time, and you beat the record. That's, the thing, that's something to celebrate. But if you find out the moment after that that you actually didn't break the record because that other person was training, and they now set a new record, are you just as happy? I mean, you set forth for the goal that you had. Or are you only happy when you run faster than someone else? And you're recognized for running faster than another person. Similarly, in a commencement speech in two, the year 2000 at Emerson College in Boston, Boston, multi-billionaire Ted Turner, the media mogul, gave a speech about the nature of success. And he states this, I quote, Success is all relative. I sit down and I say, I've only got $10 billion dollars. But Bill Gates has $100 billion. I feel like a complete failure in life. Humility conflicts with winning. It conflicts with selfish ambition, which is not a desire to to excel. It is not a desire to live for the glory of God. Selfish ambition is a desire to excel ahead of other people because you fundamentally believe that you are better than them and more worthy than them. Humility not only conflicts with winning, it also conflicts with our reputation. Verse 3, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some translation would say, uh, or vain conceit. The word here for conceit is a a compound word, kinodoxia. It's made up of two different root words. One, kino, which means empty. 
and doxia, which means glory. It's where we get words like the doxology, giving praise to God, giving glory to God. And so conceit in the biblical usage literally means empty glory. It says do nothing out of pursuit of empty glory. Is that when you live your life, we live life being glory empty. We live life being, being hungry for respect, hungry for recognition, hum, hum, hungry to be a somebody. Tim Keller calls this, he says, this is just a radical cosmic insecurity that we have because we go around looking for people to say, you know what, you're good. You know, you're, you're, you're important. You know what, your, your life matters. You're someone who overcame the obstacles, and yeah, you, you really were dealt a bad hand in life, and you have come far ahead of other people who have been dealt a better hand than you, than you yourself had received. Empty glory. Seeking to gain glory, gain significance, gain a reputation. Your glory is what you're known for. Seeking to gain glory and significance and a reputation from the things around you, the things that have happened to you, the things that you have done, the things that you have accomplished. And Paul says, do nothing out of empty glory. Don't be motivated by a vain quest for things that will only leave you empty, that will cannot satisfy, that will not fulfill. Do nothing out of conceit. Lewis Smeads, who's a Christian author, wrote a great book on the Ten Commandments. He further gives a thought. He says, pride is the grand illusion. It is the fantasy of fantasies. It is the cosmic put-on. It is the fantasy that we can make it as little gods. Pride is the fantasy that we can make it as little gods, which is where everybody is and which leaves us empty at the center. Once we decide to make it on our own, we are attacked by demons of fear and anxiety. Did you hear that? Once we decide, once we decide that we have to make it on our own, we are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety. So we learn to swagger. We learn to bluff. We learn to use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created. Every time you meet a new person, you are unconsciously wondering, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? Life becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster your own self. To put it differently, life becomes a constant battle to bolster your reputation. But humility does not live for empty glory. It does not live for the reputation. Third thing that conflicts with the core of who we are is that humility conflicts with winning. It conflicts with our reputation. And this one might seem a little bit odd, but humility conflicts with divisiveness. In verse 2, Paul Pleading with the church says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more than yourself. Paul is creating a beautiful vision. Wouldn't you like to be a part of a community like that? 
I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of a community that lives in one mind, that has the same love, that are full accord, that they are united to each other, where people are genuinely counting each other as more significant than themselves? Absolutely, all of us want this. Christian, non-Christian, everybody wants this. We all want love. We all don't, none, none of us want fighting. None of, all of us want oneness and unity. But is that what our society looks like? No, instead it's devolves to marches and shouting matches, to wars and conflicts and rumors of wars. It devolves to oppression and to violence. Now we look at this and say, well, wait a second. Paul's, Paul's talking about the church here. Yeah, exactly. He's talking about the church, that these things, the opposite of these things, which he is now, he's encouraging these things, because the opposite is occurring in the church in Philippi. Why? Because this church has been plagued with division and boasting and factions and conflict all inside of the church. Why does this happen? Because there is something fundamentally wrong with the human heart. So wrong. That even inside the church that is supposed to be united through the blood of Christ, there is division, there is contention, there are factions, there's assertion, there's ranking, there's people trying to get ahead of each other, there is reputation, there is conceit, people living for vainglory, people trying to build a Christian reputation outside of Christ, all of that occurring within the church. Now, of course, we would say, well, yeah, I mean, divisiveness, I mean, I mean, divisiveness is bad. Certainly, gospel humility conflicts with divisiveness. We would argue that until it becomes our issue that we're dividing over. Because when we start to divide over, the way that it happens is that the instant the threat comes to you, our, our humility yields to pride, and our pride yields to winning. How does that occur? Because the way that the conflicts, the tensions, the relational aspects we have, the way that it shifts to is to say, no, no, I, I'm right. I am, I am right here. And, and I, am, I am going to prove that I am right, and I am going to prove that I am wrong. And in fact, I am going to talk to other people. I'm going to get other people on my side because we are going to win this fight. But humility is opposed to divisiveness. It also, pride yields to reputation in the church. Why? Because people say, well, you know what? If there's a problem going on here and if, and if I actually did something wrong, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I can't admit that I'm wrong. I, I, I mean, I mean what, what would people think of me? What if people, what if people knew that I knew that they knew what I know? I, I, I couldn't handle that. And so when it becomes our issue, we justify divisiveness as being good and right. So much so that is a core aspect of our American identity. And I would also say this, it is a core aspect of a Protestant identity. The Catholics were right on this. At the Reformation, they said, if you go down this route, you will have endless divisions. And they were right. You know, it said Presbyterians split denominations, Baptists split churches. That's what my Baptist friends tell me. How does that occur? It's because of an unwilling to be humble. So you look at these things, humility, gospel humility conflicts with winning, it conflicts with our reputation and our quest for a reputation, it, it conflicts with our self-justified divisiveness. So the question is, how do you deal with this? How do you, if we recognize this as an issue at varying levels, and remind, remember C.S. Lewis said, if you think yourself to be an arrogant person, 
you are arrogant indeed. <laughs> is what Lewis said. He said, if you think you've got a trouble with pride, it is far worse than you can imagine. So how do you deal with this? How do you work on humility? You can't. You can't. Because the instant you say, I want to be more humble, let me ask you why. Why do you want to be more humble? Well, because I don't want to be an arrogant person. I don't want to be the type of person who's an arrogant person. I want to be the type of person who's a humble person. That's the type of person that I am. That you appeal to humility on the basis of your pride. In the screw tape letters, which is this interaction between an older demon to a protege demon, talking about, it's this parody, talking about how to, uh, the older demon is training the younger demon in how to tempt Christians. And so the, the moral of the story is always the reverse. So Screwtape says to his young protege, Wormwood, he says, I see that your patient has become, your patient, the Christian, I see your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to this fact? Catch him in a moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. Goes on to say, Abjection and self-hatred may, may also even do us good if they can keep the man concerned with himself and above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for the contempt of other selves and thus gloom, cynicism, and cruelty. What is he saying? He says, okay, if you can't get him to be proud in his own humility, at least get, it, get him to be have filled with self-contempt. At least get him to, to be consumed with how much of a failure he is, how bad he is, all the things that he does wrong, how he doesn't measure up. And why does he say that? Because if you can keep him focused and being concerned on himself... Screwtape goes on to say, let your patient think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. So the problem still stands. How do you work on humility? You can't. I've heard sermons on humility before, and oftentimes the approach is this. People like me decide that we're going to preach on humility, and the way that we're going to do this is, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to overwhelm you with the reality that you are more sinful than you can imagine, which is true. That you are, have, uh, that you turn away from the Lord in more ways than you can count. That the high, of you, the high opinion of yourself that you have is completely un unfounded. And so someone like me will crush you to make you feel really miserable, and to make you realize what a wretch you are. But that doesn't produce humility. And so because of the instant that we say, you know what, I'm not worthy. You know, I, I'm such a sinner. You know, I fail in so many ways. I, you know, I, I just can't measure up. As I have said those things, who are you focused on? 
yourself. Your mind is consumed with yourself. And as long, whether you have a high view of yourself or a low view of yourself, as long as your view of the world is centered on yourself, you have no hope but to be a self-centered person. So how does it occur? Well, humility is a fruit of the Spirit. Just like you can't grow fruit on a fruit tree, you can plant the seed, you can water it, but you actually cannot grow fruit, so too you cannot grow fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You cannot produce it. It is a byproduct of the Spirit's work in your life. So we're confronted with this reality. How do you grow in humility? You can't. You, you cannot cause yourself to grow in humility. But when we come to this text, is that where Paul leaves us? No. Why don't we stop? We're going to stop for a few moments, and we're just going to sing a hymn right now. Okay? So we're just going to stop and sing a hymn. That's what Paul does. It's odd, is it not? Paul, in this thing about how people should act with one another, all of a sudden he stops and he, he, he goes into a hymn. And he says, We're gonna, I'm just going to give you this hymn. This, this hymn is one of the oldest hymns in Christendom. It's possibly one of the earliest hymns of the church. It has three movements, an incarnation, atonement, and glory. And so this is what Paul says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Consider others more better... Be, be, Consider others more better than yourselves. How do you do that? Sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus. We're like, wow, that is so weird. Like, how does that actually work in our lives? Well, let's see what Paul does here. Because this is, Paul is very, I believe, not just breaking into this, this random thought that has come into his mind. He is actually showing us how to create opportunities in our life to grow in humility. Is you, you sing to Jesus. Why? Because you sing to Jesus who pursued emptiness over glory. Look at verse 6. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if in your Bible you notice that the text, the, the layout of the text shifts, the reason why the authors and the editors do that is because in the Greek it actually shifts in the format of the text because it is moving into a song, into this hymn. And so it shifts. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Sing to Jesus, who pursued emptiness over glory. Well, how did he do that? Verse 6 tells us he made himself nothing. The King James translates this. They said, he made himself of no reputation. He voluntarily made himself of no reputation. Now, this passage in Philippians is one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. When you go to seminary, you spend lots of time studying this passage. You study not only every word of this passage, but you practically study every letter that occurs in this passage because of how much rich theology is put into this passage. And so, we focus on Christ. Sing to Christ who pursues emptiness over glory. How did he do that? Well, he made himself nothing 
God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He, he set aside the glory of heaven. And verse 7 says, he emptied himself. Does that sound familiar? He emptied himself. The word here for empty is kanoo. Does that sound familiar? It's a word that we saw before as a compound word. Where kanoo plus doxia means empty glory. Vain conceit. So what does it say that Jesus does? He pursues emptiness over glory. Why? Because he, he emptied himself. Here is Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God. Jesus Christ, who in, in eternity, in heaven, his glory is so magnificent, so intense, so infinite, that if you saw it as it truly is, it not only would blind you, it would instantly kill you. So intense. And here is the, 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 the Son of God who has eternally existed in eternal unity with God the Father, who has been united with him in glory from before the foundation of the world. Here is the one who, who is the only one who is worthy of glory, the only one who has true and inherent glory because of who he is. And what does he do? He empties it. He empties himself of that glory. It says it's not a thing to be grasped. He doesn't use his glory, his dignity, his position. He doesn't use it for his own advantage. What does Jesus do? Jesus loses his reputation, the reputation that he rightly has. Jesus loses his reputation for you and for me. And if his reputation, which he set aside so that we might have life, so that we would have forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, and the scripture says he had no stately form that we should regard him. In fact, we despised him and esteemed him not. He wasn't something to look at. He emptied himself of his reputation. And if his reputation, the only one that has value, if Jesus emptied himself of his reputation for you, if Jesus' reputation didn't mean anything to him, why is yours so important to you and me? So what Paul says is what you need to do is you sing of Jesus. You sing of Jesus who emptied himself, who pursued emptiness over glory, who pursued no reputation instead of the one who was rightly given value and honor and renown. So you sing of Jesus. And you also sing of Jesus who pursued serving over winning. That he could have come in and conquered us and conquered all of our enemies and stepped on our necks and rubbed our face in the dirt, but he doesn't do that. He pursued serving over winning. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Notice that Jesus' actions, he humbled himself. He was not humbled. He was not humbled because there is no one in all of the cosmos who could humble him. No, he humbled himself. He subjected his will, his desires, his glory for the benefit of others. He did what, he, what Paul encourages us to do in verse 3. He counted others as more significant than himself. He looked to others' interests and not his own. 
He lived and gave his life for the benefit of others, to serve others, others instead of winning. And he died to do what he did not want to do. He didn't want to go through the suffering of that. He prayed that the Father would change, change the, what was about to happen on the cross. But he pursued serving. And that meant going to the cross. You see, humility leads to obedience, and it leads to obedience regardless of the consequences. It leads to obedience that might even lead someone to death, even death on a cross. We need to understand the weight of why Paul adds this in and why this is part of this hymn. Even death on a cross. You know, the cross, after 2,000 years, has lost its stigma. We think the cross is beautiful. I like pretty crosses. I like to put color on the crosses that we have. We have cross necklaces. We have cross decorations. We stick them all over our walls. We do all kinds of things with crosses because we think it's beautiful. In the history of Christianity, Christians never did that until 400 years after the time of Christ. It was in the late 300s that they actually started using the cross as a symbol of Christians. Before that, they used the symbol of a dove. Dove being a symbol of the Holy Spirit and the one who brings us peace with God. In 314, the Cairo, particularly because of Constantine, which are Cairo, the P and the X in English letters, are the first two letters in the Greek, the first two letters of the word Christ um, in Greek. Alpha and the Omega. Jesus says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So a common Christian symbol was the anchor, that he is the one who holds us firm in the storm. There's a Christian symbol of the ichthay, which stands for Jesus Christ, um, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And originally, the ichthay, some of you know that term, if you, if you just read it, it says fish. But originally, Christians, the symbol that they used was this uh, eight-piece wheel. And the reason for the eight-piece wheel is because you could actually get all the letters of Greek in this. You get, you get the... Uh, the I here in English terms, the I here, the X here, you get the theta across, you get the gamma, you get the epsilon as it comes through. And so that was a symbol of this wheel of eight-piece eight, eight wheel that Christians would use, and eventually that developed into the Christian fish. And that was the way it was for the first several centuries. That's how Christians identified themselves. Why? Because the cross was a stigma. The cross was an object of derision. It was so offensive that it was viewed as an obscenity. It was an, uh, something that would be never mentioned in polite Roman society. It would be like wearing a cuss word on a necklace, or like an electric chair on your necklace, or a lethal injection, or a hangman's noose of lynching. You know, that hangman's noose of lynching you've got, I mean, that just glimmers so nice, I think I'd like to hang that on the wall in my house. You know, your, your electric chair, that's so quaint. So pretty, such a pretty electric chair that you have. They would never do that because of, it was shockingly, it was shockingly offensive. Because it's on the cross, the only people that went to the cross were those who were accursed by God, those who would be tortured, those who were given punishment, those who obviously had shit sinned. They were put on the cross so that shame and indignity and guilt would be poured out upon them so that people could come by and give them scorn and the object of derision. And the text says that what Jesus Christ did is that Jesus, 
pursued, is that he pursued serving over winning. He pursued emptiness over glory. He pursued giving his life. He pursued sacrifice over selfishness. And he took the reputation of the worst, most disgusting, most vile person, and he took it upon himself so that we would have forgiveness and have life everlasting. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? It means sing of Jesus. To sing of Jesus who pursued serving over winning, who pursued sacrifice over selfishness. Sing of Jesus. And not only do we sing of Jesus, but we also sing of Jesus as the one who will bring unity instead of division. He will bring unity over division. That's what verse 9 and 10, 9 through 11 say. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Paul is calling us to do? He is saying, sing to Jesus as the one who brings unity over division. Why? Because there is a day coming when the divisions of this world will be united under King Jesus. There is a day coming when every person, every fiefdom that has been living for counterfeit glory, that has been living in vain pursuit, has been living to gain empty glory, and they've been trying to do it through their careers, through their kingdom, through their money, through their dominion, through their power, through their reputation. There is a day coming when all of those divisions when all of those factions will lay down their crown and they will lay it at the feet of Jesus and their knee will bow and their lips will confess that there is only one Lord and there is only one God and there is only one person to whom glory is due and that is Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There will be unity over division, under the kingship of King Jesus. So let me ask you, what empty glory do you live for? What, what badge do you wear on your sleeve that you want people to know you for? What accomplishments have you achieved in your life you know, that somehow when you meet people, it just gets worked into the conversation pretty quickly? What are the things that you're concerned about your reputation? What are the biggest threats to your reputation? Whatever it is, whatever badge it is that you wear, take off the badge, take off the crown, and lay it at the feet of Jesus. The day is coming when it will occur. It's better to do it now than then. What badge do you wear? Is it the position that you have attained to? that you are the one who broke out of your family cycle, you broke out of the dysfunction, you broke, broke out of the health, you have come so far. Is that the badge that you wear? Is, it the, is the badge that you wear how much you've attained, the rank that you hold, the position that you have, the influence that you have? Is the badge that you wear that you're the one who finally got parenting right? That you're the one who has the answers to these things? Is the badge that you wear your intellect, that you're the person that always has the right answers? 
Are you, what is your badge? Is it your conduct that you always do rightly? Or take it on the flip side. Maybe it's because, not because of things that, are, that you think are commendable, but quite the opposite. Is the badge that you wear the struggles in your life? Is it the desires and temptations that you have that you want to be given a pass for because you deal with those things? Is the badge that you wear the wrongs that have been done to you, maybe by your family or, or someone else, and so you walk around and you look to gain empty glory from other people? Oh, if only you would recognize. Oh, if only you would realize it's not my fault. Oh, if only you would understand that, there, that I am so much better than what appears because of all the things that have been done to me. What is the badge you wear? And whatever badge it is, lay it at the feet of Jesus. Sing to Jesus. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking of yourself, is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself Less, And I would add, it is not, not merely thinking of yourself less, it is thinking of Christ Jesus more. And that is how the gospel produces humility in our lives. It is for this, this very reason that in addressing this issue, I believe... That when Paul is speaking to a church and speaking to us, speaking to people like me and like you who live to win... People who live to build their reputation. People who, who will divide when they are questioned. It is why when, people, when speaking to people like them and like us, that the Apostle Paul says, brothers and sisters, he says, if there is any encouragement of Christ, can you think about what Christ has done? Has there been a time in your life when you were downcast, when you were downtrodden, and you felt the Spirit of God come alongside you and encourage you? If there is any encouragement in Christ, brothers and sisters, if there is any comfort from love, you may not have experienced love in this life. You have maybe been used and abused by other people. If you have ever experienced the love of God for you, if there is any encouragement from love, any participation in the Spirit, have you ever had the moment where you were there and you felt like you couldn't continue? You didn't know how you were going to move through and face the situation that you were dealing with. And Paul says, if you have ever had any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus, the one who was in the form of God who had glory from eternity, who did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Sing to Jesus because he is the one who emptied himself, the one who took the form of a servant, the one who became like us. <sighs> Sing to Jesus who emptied himself and humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient to the point of death. When was the last time your obedience led you to sacrifice? Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you know what happens? Sing to Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, God, God, God Almighty has said, this is the one who is exalted. This is the one who is to be appraised. This is the one on whom there is the name that is above at every name. This is the one before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And this is the one that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what you need to do is sing to Jesus? Because the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. So brothers and sisters, may we sing of Jesus. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. And may we resolve to know him, to love him, to live for him. And by the grace of God, may the Holy Spirit produce in you humility. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts to sing to you. We are so overcome and so impressed with our successes and failures that we can't stop staring at our own belly buttons. So, Father, lift our eyes and lift our gaze to something that is truly beautiful, that is truly praiseworthy, that is truly noteworthy, that alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Lord, lift our eyes to Jesus that we would sing his praise throughout every moment of our days. Amen. Please stand. Let's respond to God's word. Let's sing to him. Stars sing.